Genesis 15, beginning at verse 7. This is the word of the Lord. May we listen with reverence and awe. And the Lord said to Abraham, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give, uh, to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? God said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. And the Lord said to Abraham, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, you shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, To your offspring I give you this land. From the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Canaanites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. This is God's word, and we thank him for it. John chapter 1, verses 1 to 18. This is the word of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of man. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness, to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, 
This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. This is God's word, and we thank him for it. As Scott said last week, one of the major things that we hope Christians understand is that the God of the Old Testament is the same as the God of the New Testament. There's not two different gods. Whenever we hear anything about God appearing to people, even from the very beginning in Genesis, we know that that is Christ. And when John tells us in chapter 12 that Isaiah saw the glory of God, well, that was actually that Christ is who Isaiah saw. When we read in Jude, in the oldest Greek manuscripts, that it was God who led us, uh, his people out of Egypt. It's actually Jesus led his people out of the land of Egypt. In Genesis, at the creation, we know that the Holy Spirit was there, hovering over the waters. So when you're reading about God in the Old Testament and God in the New Testament, read them together and let the light of the new shine in the old. The reason I'm saying all that is not to repeat what Scott said last week, but rather to remind you that when we come to Genesis 15 and all of the weird stuff that is in there about cutting animals in half, we shouldn't be surprised if we read it's about Jesus. If you're able, please do open your Bibles to Genesis 15, and we'll be thinking about part two of our series on grace and what this very strange text about animals getting cut in two and smoking pots and torches could possibly be teaching us about Christ. Genesis 15 really explains to us about the wider context of the covenant of grace. Sometimes we just kind of lump everything in together. We think Noah, Abraham, Moses, and everyone else up until Jesus is there. And then Jesus is a standalone character. But yet, that can't be. Because at this point, there is no law. Paul, in Galatians 3.17, puts a timeline on it. He says, the law, which came 430 years after Abraham, after this covenant, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God to make the promise null and void. So, Whatever it is that Abraham is living under here, please do not think that Abraham is living under the law. And don't think it's irrelevant for us today, because the law, which came 430 years after this, does not annul this covenant or make the promises void. Abraham could not have been justified by the works of the law because he did not have the law. We know from John 1.17 that the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Moses doesn't show up until Exodus 2. 
So when does Jesus appear? Well, in John, when he says, in the beginning was the word, John is deliberately using that framework to mimic the opening of Genesis. In the beginning was the word, in the beginning when God created. And according to John, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So my proposition to you this morning is that when John says grace and truth came through Jesus Christ, John is not just referring to the incarnation, but he's referring to episodes like this from the beginning. Because in the beginning was the word. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. When we read this, we should not be see, uh, we should be seeing grace and truth. We should not be reading Genesis looking for law. In verse 7 of our reading from, from Genesis, we find that the Lord is reminding Abraham that he is the one who has called, who has brought, who has given Abraham a new land. In verse 8, Abraham turns around and says, O Lord God, how am I supposed to know that I will possess this land? We already know from the earlier section that Abraham is a believer. He has been justified by faith. God imputed that to him as righteousness. So what's going on here? Well, notice how God responds to Abraham. If you're following in your Bibles, as I hope you are, God gives a really weird answer to this. So God, how am I going to know that I will inherit this promised land? Well, God does not say, Ab Abraham, I have already told you that. Are you deaf? God doesn't turn around and say, stop asking me questions, man. Instead, God reminds him of something that Abraham has already confessed. That the Lord God is his king. And that because the Lord God is his king, he has nothing to worry about. So what does that look like? How does God remind Abraham that he is his king? If you're following uh, with me, please read verse 9. God said to Abraham, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. God, how do I know that you'll get the land, that I'll get the land that you promised? Well, Abraham, bring me a sheep, goat, cow, and a couple of birds. Strange answer. Strange answer. No one even seems to know why it was specifically these animals and birds. I think it's because God is very specific in how he wants us, how he wants us to worship him. We always approach God on his own terms. But anyway, Abraham does what he's told. And then it gets even weirder. What does Abraham do with these animals? Verse 10. He brought all these, cut them in half, and laid them uh, each half over against the other. But he didn't cut the birds in half. Abraham cuts the animals in half. I wonder if he was sorry if he asked the question. But nowhere in the text, anywhere, is it even hinted at that the animals were killed before being cut in half. And I think that's deliberately graphic because the writer wants us to imagine the pain, the suffering, the blood of this, the 
agony of this. Then, to make things even worse, vultures come down and try and pick away the flesh in verse 11. When the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abraham drove them away. And all of this in the heat of the sun, because we know it's not until verse 12 that the sun sets. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abraham. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. All of this was the answer to Abraham's question. How will I know that I will possess this land? We'll get there in a minute, but keep reading. Verses 3 to 16 give a prophecy about what will happen with Abraham's descendants over the longer term. The Lord speaks in verses 13 and 14. Abraham's offspring will uh, be sojourners in a foreign land. They'll be afflicted for 400 years. God will bring judgment on the nation. They'll come out with great possessions. And of course, we know that this was a prophecy of the Exodus. But what about Abraham? Well, in verse 15, we find out that he will live a long life, a long life, a peaceful life. And once God's enemies, the Amorites, are ripe for judgment, we read in verse 16 that God will send Abraham's offspring back to destroy God's enemies. Then in verse 17, and through to the middle of verse 18, we return to Abraham and the animals. Verse 17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day... The Lord made a covenant with Abraham. So we know that the answer to Abraham's question is really found in verse 18. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. All of that weirdness with the animals, with the smoking pot, with the, with the torch, all of that is how the covenant was made with Abraham. This is the same covenant that Paul talks about in Galatians 3, the one that the law, uh, sorry, that came uh, 430 years before the law. So this covenant has not been annulled because it has been previously ratified by the king, by God. And the promise in this covenant is not void, which means it still stands. So whatever, whatever has happened in our reading so far, Genesis is not null and void. The promise still stands. The promise still stands. Because somehow, folks, this promise, this covenant, is about Jesus Christ. And here's a few things that help us to see Jesus in this passage. First off, when we read that God made a covenant, that's a very bland way of putting it. You don't make a covenant, you cut a covenant. That's the Hebrew, you cut a covenant, like cutting a deal. And if you don't keep up your end of the covenant, you're cut off. So the model that Abraham was using, the model that the Lord was using with this covenant, it might sound weird to us, very weird to us, but back in the day, this is how a legal covenant was cut or was made. And a king, a great king, would cut a covenant with a weaker ruler. The, greater, the great king would protect the 
weaker ruler. And part of the terms and conditions of the covenant were blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. To sign the covenant, the great king would walk on between the animal pieces that were split in two, while the beneficiary, the weaker king, the weaker ruler, would walk behind him and make an oath that if he failed to keep up his part of the covenant, he would be cut off. He would be destroyed, exactly like the very, very visible illustration of the animals that were split in two and who they were walking through. But Abraham's end of the covenant is very different. Because in verse 17, who do we find walking through the animal pieces? We find a smoking uh, fire and a flaming torch, which are two symbols of the presence of the Lord. We know from Exodus 19 that the smoking fire is synonymous with the Lord's presence. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. Isaiah 60, uh, 62 says that salvation, the Savior, is as a burning torch. So who's going on before in this dream, in this vision? The smoking fire, the Lord. Who's taking responsibility for the covenant? The burning torch, the Savior, the Savior. Who's the great king? The Lord. And who's standing in the place of the guy who will receive all of the benefits of this covenant? The Savior. What's Abraham doing? Sleeping. Did Abraham and his offspring keep up their end of the covenant? Not at all. Was Abraham torn away cut off from his people. No, we've just read that Abraham would die in peace at a good old age. But folks, do we know anyone who would be cut off from his people? Someone who would be pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, upon whom the chastisement that brings us peace would be laid on, and by whose wounds we would be healed? Someone who would not live to a good old age, but someone who would die age 33. Because that burning torch, our salvation, who Isaiah calls a covenant for the peoples, is the light of the nations that shined in the darkness. This perpetual covenant, the covenant of grace, is the same covenant that we stand under. Because Christ stood in our place. He took the punishment for us, just the same as he did for Abraham. We get all of the blessings, and he took all of the punishment. When we think of the cross, we so quickly become accustomed to it, because we see it on the top of buildings, we see it on jewelry, we so frequently sing about it, some of us have tattoos of it. But how often do we seriously think about the pain, the agony, and the suffering? Imagine the blood and the organs, the bones peeking through, the torn skin, the sinew of that man on the cross.
because that is what Christ willingly agreed to for us in this covenant. He saw the animals and walked through. His body broken for us, the blood of the covenant poured out for you and for me. Promised here in Genesis 15, painted in the Passover, but realized on the cross. And folks, when we talk about a covenant of grace, this is the covenant of grace. Jesus knew what it would cost him. And he chose that because he loves his bride so much, his church, his people. Does anyone else love you like that? Do we love anyone like that? Especially us, a disobedient and sin-stained people. Folks, none of this in Genesis 15 was so some old man in the ancient Near East would have a son and a bit of land. When we come to worship, is Christ front and center of what we do? Or are we far more concerned with things that simply do not matter. When we come to pray, do we understand that in order to pray, Christ endured this torture, this suffering, this agony, so that we could come to God? When we sing, do we realize the grace that is ours in Christ Jesus? Or do we just sing them as nice words that fit nice tunes? Or are we sitting in church playing with our phones because church is just how we pass the time on a Sunday morning? Folks, behold the man upon the cross. Because this is also a picture of Christ's finished work. What was Abraham doing? He was asleep. Who was doing all the work? Lord. Abraham was resting. And that is what we are called to do, rest in Christ. At the end of the chapter, when we read about Abraham's uh, offspring inheriting this promised land, please do not ever read that as some divine entitlement on an ethnic people inheriting physical land. Because you are there too. We know in Romans 4 that the true offspring of this man Our believers, those who, like him, have been justified by faith alone, whose faith was counted to them as righteousness. No one from any ethnicity that denies the Messiah will inherit the promised land. And folks, tonight, when you look up at the stars or go to the beach and get more sand in your shoes, socks, pockets, and wherever else Scott got sand in, please look around and realize when God said, Abraham, your offspring will be like the sand by the sea or the stars in the sky, realize that you are one of their, uh, the stars or the grains of sand. You are there too, if you know the Messiah. You are a grain of sand or a star in the sky because you are a child of promise. And folks, remember, it's not just one star, it's not just one grain of sand. Even if you go out and feel like you are the only Christian in your home, your school, your university, your work, remember, 
that there are other grains of sand, there are other stars, and we gather together on a Sunday twice to worship this great king who led the way for us. But remember, above all, that when you read this weird little story about this old man sawing animals in two, that that even shows us the grace of God which is ours in Christ Jesus and in whom we have every spiritual blessing. Folks, if you don't know Christ, please do not let this drift over your head. Because if Christ was not cut off in your place, your time is coming to be cut off yourself. You will die, and you will experience the full wrath of hell. You will experience the smoking pot and the torch. Not as a picture of God's salvation, but as a picture of God's judgment. Forever. You need to get right with Christ. We need to begin taking scripture seriously. We need to take Christ seriously. Folks, there's a day coming when to say seriously that we believe things that are in scripture will be the equivalent of committing a hate crime. There's a guy coming in a few weeks from the Christian Institute who will share a little bit with us of what's going on. Now, I'm not a prophet of doom. I don't sit in the office with stockpiled cans of beans and dry pasta and blueberry waffles for the apocalypse or for Brexit, whichever comes first. But folks, what is our strategy if this building is taken away from us in the next 10 years? Because if you look around, especially Belfast, you will see an awful lot of buildings that have been built well enough to withstand the loss of their congregations. In Dublin, I uh, think of my granny's uh, old church of Ireland on Mary Street. It's now a restaurant. Pretty good restaurant, I believe. The church is long gone. The building outlasted the church. Walk around Belfast, you'll see the same. Bricks and mortar and dust and spiders in place of the church. Is the reverse true, do you think? Because if you look around and see these buildings that have been built well enough to withstand the loss of their congregations, do you think Eden Grove Presbyterian Church is strong enough to withstand the loss of her buildings? Folks, are you actually in the church or are you just in a building? When we read the closing verses here, don't make the mistake that the Jews made. Do not think that a physical bit of land is your inheritance. It's not. Where is Abraham now? He never made it to this promised land. He died before that at a good old age and in peace. So was God wrong? Was God wrong? Did Abraham never possess that promised land that all this apparently was about? Of course he did. Abraham, according to the author of Hebrews, died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that he was a stranger and an exile on the earth. Folks, Abraham is alive and well in the real promised land, 
not just the shadow, along with everyone else who has died in Christ. How are we getting to heaven? The same way dear old Abraham went, through faith alone in the Messiah alone, the one who stood in our place in this covenant, took all of the curses on himself for us, a sinful and disobedient people. Not that we deserve it, but because grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And all who trust in him, though they die, yet shall they live. It's ironic. You can be sleeping in the grave, but singing your lungs out in heaven. Like the believers who have passed away, whose bodies do rest in the grave. Or you can be dead on your feet, singing songs from a pew. Folks, do you know Christ? Let us pray. Lord, we thank you that Christ paid it all, that everything, everything required for blessing, for peace with you, for blessings of this covenant, he took on himself through the broken body and the spilled blood. Lord, please bless this people, bless this church, strengthen us, make your face shine upon us, and be gracious to us. Lord, please bless us. In Christ's name we pray.